Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. When asked, what is your religion? I answer, the power of the Mahahanya. Sometimes affirming things, sometimes denying them. It is beyond the wisdom of men. Sometimes with common sense and sometimes against it. Heaven cannot make head or tail of it. Yeah. That's Mr. Bly's translation of the beginning of um, Yokodaishi's verses. Suzuki has a translation which begins like this. Knowest thou that leisurely philosopher who has gone beyond learning and is not exerting himself in anything. He neither endeavors to avoid idle thoughts nor seeks after truth, for he knows that ignorance in reality is the Buddha nature and that this empty visionary body is a not less than the Dharma body. Two versions. Anyway, Yoko Daishi died uh, in the Christian era uh, 713. He was also known as Gangaku. And he was one of the chief disciples of uh, the sixth patriarch, Huining. Now, he was uh, involved with, or he was a student of, a disciple of the Tiantai, or as we say, the Tendai school, or the Madhyamika school. And this uh, Tiantai school was begun separately outside of the line of Bodhidharma. You see, it followed Nagarjuna, the Madhyamika school. Huh? <clears throat> but in it, because, you know, Nagarjuna was such a genius, huh? the intellect was so great, that this school <clears throat> became uh, quite intellectual, and so it emphasizes, emphasized that aspect of it uh, at the expense of the practical, you know. So there was lots of thinking and lots of talk, you know. Yeah. But while reading <clears throat> one day the Vimalakirti Malakirti Sutra, huh? this Yokodaishi, it is said he discovered his true nature. Now, um, the man who became his teacher, you know, this waning became enlightened, they say, while reading the Diamond Sutra, 
and Yokodaishi, the Vaimala, Vaimalakirti Sutra. Although both of them said, and both of them insisted, that their realization came from within, within themselves, you know, and it was not the printed word. Sometimes, you know, a printed word will trigger something in you, but then it rises in you, and it is not then what you have been reading, and you will see, you can, or you can experiment with it. You can read something and something happens, you know. And then uh, uh, a few weeks later, why uh, you want the same thing to happen, so you go back and read the same thing. And it doesn't even make any sense, you know. It doesn't hang together anymore as it did before. And you think, well, you know, what's going on here? So, so the state of consciousness enters into the thing. Even in reading the printed word, what you understand out of it is your state of consciousness. Yeah. Now, this sutra that Yokodaishi read is about, is a story about a lay student, a philosopher. And he is a student of the Buddhas, but he was not part of the Sangha. He was not part of the Brotherhood, so to speak. He was, as they say, outside the pale. He was outside. Hmm? <clears throat> But he was a towering man. Yeah. And one day he became ill. And uh, <clears throat> he was in the hospital. And the Buddha asked his disciples to go and visit him. And they all had an excuse why they couldn't go. Except one. And um, this one goes to visit him, and after some very preliminary conversation in which this Vimalakirtis says that he is sick <coughs> because his fellow beings are sick with greed and anger and folly, See, and then this thing is, this whole sutra is a dialogue between these two very great Mahayana Buddhists until it finally turns in the thing to a discussion of what is meant by the doctrine of non-duality. And this visitor expounds his view and then turns to ask this Disciple is of you, and he doesn't say a word, just silence, huh? Yeah. <clears throat> In this sutra, we find such sayings as, do not worry about the sins that you have committed, O monks. Why? Because sins, in their essence, are neither within nor without, nor in the middle. No place left, is there? No? As the Buddha taught us, no. all things are defiled 
when mind is defiled. All things are pure when mind is pure. And mind is neither within, nor without, nor in the middle. As is the mind, so are the sins and defilements. So are all things. And they never transcend the suchness of truth. See, that's part of that sutra. Huh? Now, this man, Yoko Daishi, he has this experience, and he's quite sure that he has attained enlightenment. But he wants it verified. And there is no one at this time in the Tiantai sect which can verify it for him. Hmm? But he is advised to go and see this sixth patriarch, Wei Ning. So he goes to visit him. And the visit that he has, that Yokodaishi has with Wei Ning, uh, is now also a sutra. It's called the Platform Sutra. Anyway, he comes to this waning, this master, and he walks around him three times without bowing, and then he stands in front of him with his staff, with got these iron rings on it, and he shakes it, the air, you know, and there he stands. And waning looks at him and says, a Buddhist monk embodies, embodies the 3,000 rules of deportment, and the 80,000 minute moral rules. <laughs> From whence does your honor come, may I ask, with your overweening self-assurance? You know, when one comes to a master, you know one should bow three times. And that's the traditional greeting. When you face an enlightened person, you bow three times. The body bows, the mind bows, the soul bows. It is this gesture of surrender. You know, all of you. No ego. You bow. Hmm? And when this gesture happens quite spontaneously, huh, something happens in here. Hmm? If the bow is studied, it is studied. But if it just happens, you know. now, when the waning says to him, you know, what about these 3,000 rules and the 80,000 minute deportments? You know, what about that? Do you think he's, he's saying to him, you have to follow all these rules? Hmm? No, he's pushing him. He's provoking him. Stirring him. It's very easily misunderstood, of course. But when we misunderstand, of course, we also miss the moment. And Yoko Daishi could have answered in response, what nonsense is this? You know, 
I never thought that a man of your stature, a man like you, would expect these stupid rules, be they 3,000 or be they 80,000. He could have said that in response and missed. Hmm? But he answered, birth and death is a problem of great moment. All changes ceaselessly. Now, on the surface, of course, it looks like what he is saying in response has nothing to do with what Wei Ning said. Hmm? But he is saying, you know, any moment I can die. You know. Do you want me to follow all that ritual? Any moment I can die. And if I die following all those 80,000 rules, who's going to be responsible? You or me? Hmm? Who will be responsible for my misery? He could have said that. But no, he alludes to it. You know, he points to it. He kind of indicates it. See? And he responds correctly. So then the master asks, why not embody the unborn and grasp the timeless? Why be worried about death and birth? See, then that's another push. It's another stirring the pot. Huh? Why not embody the unborn? It's a beautiful sentence. Why not embody the unborn? Why don't you go along and think that there is no death, that the soul is immortal, that life never dies? Why don't you think that? Everybody else believes it. Hmm? Why don't you believe it? No. Embody the unborn and grasp the timeless. Why be worried with time and change. You, all you have to do is believe, you know. And this Yokodaishi, he answers, you know, to be unborn and deathless is to embody it. To be timeless is to grasp it. There is no other way. How can I embody the unborn and the deathless? It is not a question of belief. It is not a question of practice. I cannot cultivate it. Cultivation is imposed. And anything that is imposed is a decoration, you know? It's put on the surface, and that's false. How can I embody it? And how can I grasp the timeless? There is only one way, and that is to be. To be. I have heard all these philosophies. I could believe in them. Millions of people believe in them. But belief like this does not lead to knowing. 
Only being is needed. Being is needed, huh? To be unborn and deathless is to embody it. That's the only way. That is so. That is so, says Weining. That is so. Hmm? The push worked. The master could not provoke him, this Yoko Daishi, into lots of nonsense, talking about this and talking about that and talking about the other thing. Hmm? The easy way, the way of least resistance, would have been, you know, just to fall into the trap and go blah, 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 blah. I mean, he was a well-educated man with all these philosophies. Uh -uh. Not this one. When the waning said, that is so, that is so, this affirmation, see, he verified it, this affirmation, and such a reverence rose in this Yoko Daishi, see, not just a traditional reverence that, you know, but this, this something that, that rose in him in this moment when Waning spoke so quietly, you know, that is so. We could say the heart speaks. And there in that moment is this contact between these two. The real meeting. It has a grace in it. The master has found his disciple, and the disciple has found his master. And that which is prescribed in the scriptures happens all its own. Not because it's written in the scripture, but because of this real encounter now. Yoko Daishi prostrates himself comes this tremendous bow, huh? Yeah, that's bowing. Yeah, huh? And then he gets up and he prepares to say goodbye, farewell. What's the rest of the song? Anyway. Waning says, aren't you in a little bit of a hurry? to go away. To which this Yoko Daishi now answers, motion has no real existence. So how can there be such a thing as hurry? Another encounter begins. This time it comes from Yoko Daishi. The, the disciple, back to the master. Huh? One part has been fulfilled of this dialogue, the teacher pushing the student. Yeah. Now to be total, the student pushes the teacher. Hmm? And he's doing it by saying, you know, <clears throat> motion has no real existence. It's all relative. 
2,500 years ago, before modern science, Buddha was saying, everything is relative. You know, I wonder why we're still struggling with it. Everything is relative. Hmm. Then the waning <coughs> asks, who knows that motion is unreal? Who knows that motion is unreal? If motion is unreal, then the knower of it cannot be real either. You know, you can't mix up your levels. You keep your levels sharply differentiated, <laughs> to quote. See? Who knows? Who knows that motion is unreal? See? Who is the witness to this? Who knows this? And Yokodaishi says to him, you are discriminating in asking such a question. You are creating time. Oh, and this teacher is so happy. Oh, man, so happy, huh? You have grasped birthlessness. If one can know, if one can see that time is unreal, then birth and death have disappeared because they exist in time. They are events in time. And this Yoko Daishi comes right back with, has the expression, birthlessness any meaning? Hmm? If there is no time, there is no birth. What then does birthlessness mean? Meanings depend on their opposites. If someone asks you what light is, you have to bring in the dark. Otherwise, you wouldn't know what light is. Hmm? If someone asks you what health is, you have to bring in sickness. Otherwise, you don't know what health is. Yeah. Meanings are in the context of opposites. Everything is relative. Hmm? Ordinarily, when we discuss things with another, <clears throat> or we argue with someone, it's not a question of truth. It is a question of who is right, you or me. Hmm? Who's right? That's the usual argument, huh? But you don't argue with a master. Hmm? You may have a dialogue, the mundo, you know, with him, but not argument. Yeah. And when you come to the truth, you know, you touch it. He will affirm it. This is so. This is so. It's not a question of who is right in this. It's what is right. Not who, but what is right. 
Now, all of this, of course, is a very strange dialogue. And it's really very unique. Here are two men, great stature, great power, and they're facing each other without any competition, hmm? without any argument. When the power is real, you know, there need be no competition because there isn't any defense then. If one is defending something, one moves cautiously. Real power is not yours. It belongs to the whole. In order to know real power, you become the whole, the total. Hmm? And there you have this pure power, but it is never a power over somebody, over anybody. Hmm? Now this, um, uh, but Yoko Daishi, these verses that Yoko Daishi wrote, it has been translated as um, the Realization Way song, or as we would say, the Song of Enlightenment. I like Realization Way song. Yeah. And now, our spiritual search, uh, our search for enlightenment. People all over seek. They search, they look, it's a quest. And this has been called illusory. Yeah? The search for spiritual things is called illusory because in the midst of all the seeking and the looking and the searching, it takes one thing for granted that something is missing and nothing is missing. Hmm? If you think something is missing, then you have to go looking for it. And when you look for it, you look in all directions. You look in every corner. You look at the ceiling and you look at the floor and you look under every chair and the more you look, the more you miss. Hmm? Because the more you search out there, the more dust-covered becomes the mirror. Hmm? Mm -hmm. The more you wander in your searching, the more frustrated you become. And then surely you begin to think, it is so far away. It is so far away. That's why I'm not reaching it. It is so far away. Hmm? What kind of dust is that? Hmm? Well, you're not reaching it because you are it. Settle down. See, in all of that looking and looking and looking and trying to grasp it out there like that, you have forgotten the one who is searching. Hmm? 
It isn't far away. You can't even call it close. It's not distant. <laughs> yeah. It breathes in you. It isn't out there. It's here. And it's not then. It's now. You know, like he said, from the very beginning, all sentient beings are Buddha. It's uh, <clears throat> like um, to Christ, you know. All things were made by him. And he came. And he came to his own people. And his own people knew him not. You think you are other people? From the beginning, nothing is missing. And this is the basic message of Zen. And to me, it's one of the greatest messages that has ever been proclaimed to man. Because it is the greatest liberating force. What is needed is not this looking, you know, this searching. It's just simply a new way of looking. It is not a grand, you know, program of improvement, self-improvement, you know, of achievement, you know, of accomplishment. You know. All you have to do is find you already are. That's no accomplishment. <laughs> but you already are, you had nothing to do with. Little you sitting there, huh? What did you accomplish? You sat still and shut up. Well, that's an accomplishment, I guess. Huh? But this growth, you know, this growth into self-perfection. You sit? What has grown? Huh? And attainment? Well, what attained? By the time attainment is there, you aren't. So what's the attainment? And what is there was already there. See? Just all that happened was the eyes all of a sudden were open. Hmm? There are available to us, because of world situations today, there are available to us a great many methods. Hmm? And you go and you study a method, and with it you build a mental structure. And now after you have this mental structure nicely in place, then you should go to a teacher and let that teacher tear it down. Hmm? Someone 
who can allow you to see the futility of this structure that you have. And then, of course, you get into another method, and you build another structure, huh? and you tear that one down. It's useless. Little by little, one after another, you, get from, you go from one method to another method, and each one builds this nice mental structure, and you tear them down, and gradually you eliminate all the methods because they are simply methods, and you're running around, you know, from one story to another in a method. Yeah. One day, someday, sooner or later, hopefully sooner, you come to see that there is nowhere to go. Just to build another structure doesn't satisfy you anymore. Maybe you ran out of structures, I don't know. You can always build your own, you know. You don't have to rely on those that are already there. Anyway, comes this moment when they're... You're not going to be satisfied with a mental structure. And this moment is called great doubt. In, in the Western world, the Christian mystics call it the dark night of the soul. Dark night of the soul. There is nothing. Huh? There is nothing to be attained. There is nowhere to go. What are you going to do? Hmm? And then comes these questions of why do I even exist? Hmm? It it's just all seems so meaningless. What's this all about? Great doubt. This doubt is necessary. And it has been said that this great doubt comes before. It precedes enlightenment, or as Zenists say, it's satori. And when you hit this doubt, now you're either going to fall back and start moving around in the methods again, you know, you begin to cling to the scriptures, the methods, huh? to philosophies, to doctrines, you know. You fall back so that you will avoid this doubt. You want to cling to something. You don't want to stand alone. No. But, you know, as they say, if you have the courage, and it takes courage, and even then, you won't break through right away, just because you decide you've got courage. Hmm? But there will come a day when you will remain in that doubt. You won't back out of it so quick. You will remain in it. You won't try to cling. You know? You're a little more willing to let go of the ego. And you just leave yourself in that dark night. <clears throat> and suddenly in that dark night, you wake up. You just wake up. <clears throat> we could have a small parallel, a small comparison. 
a nightmare. Hmm? If the nightmare is too terrible, the dream breaks up, huh? You wake up. You can go on dreaming sweet dreams all night long. That's no problem. No, no. The dream is so sweet, it's like a lullaby. It sort of hypnotizes you. It kind of keeps you intoxicated with its sweetness. Hmm? But if you're being chased by a tiger, then what? Huh? And the tiger's coming closer and closer and closer. Oh, and you're so afraid, and your heart is going, and the breath is all out of rhythm, and you're perspiring, and you're running, and you're running, and you're running. There doesn't be, seem to be any way to escape. And all of a sudden, you see that the path becomes to an abrupt halt. Now there's nothing but this great abyss. Where are you going to go? The tiger is still coming closer and closer. You can feel his breath on your back. You can feel his paw, you know. You wake up. And what do you know? See, this abruptness, this sudden wake up. Your roommate got his hand or her hand on your back and is snoring. That was your tiger of the dream, huh? Jakob Böhme, you know, the great German mystic, he wrote back in 1622, and he said, it unfolded itself in me from time to time. I went around pregnant with it for 12 years, and a hefty impulse arose in me before it came to an external form. And he had, as he later wrote, this tremendous contradiction in him. He found good and evil in all things. Hmm? That it went as well in this world with the not pious as well as with the pious. And that barbarous people possessed the best lands and had more good fortune than the pious. He couldn't understand this. You know. And he says, I therefore became very melancholy and highly troubled. Nothing could comfort me. When in such sadness I tried earnestly to elevate my spirit to God, I locked my whole heart and mind along with all my thoughts and will therein. See, everything he tried to lock in, ceaselessly pressing in, and not to cease until he blessed me. 
And after 12 years, he says, then it came. After some hard storms, my spirit broke through hell's gates into the innermost birth of the Godhead, and there I was embraced with love as a bridegroom embraces his dear bride. When he had this experience, I think, as you all know, he was a shoemaker, hmm? and he was cobbling shoes in candlelight. And he looked up, and there were some pewter plates along the wall, and the light was reflecting in one of the pewter plates. And it opened the whole thing for him. Yeah. You know, like I say, you sit for meditation and you sit for meditation and you sit for meditation and you hold this focus and you walk away from the meditation, you try to maintain this focus. And then all of a sudden you look outside and whew, my, there is another way of looking. It is a different world, but changed. Your way of looking. So, now, we could say that this is the work, and of course the teacher's part is to push you into that great doubt so that you can have this new way of looking, this sudden switch of consciousness, this wake up, hmm? the sudden, the abrupt. And our problems that we observe, you know, the case presented, and you take one of them, you take what you have, and it allows the intellect, it allows the mind, our thinking, uh, to see, you know, how far it can go. It's, it, you, you practice how far the mind can go. What, what, what can you develop out of this thing? Huh? And then you reach this impasse. The mind sees that there is this realm into which it can never enter. So you back up, and then you start again. And you back up after you reach that impasse, and you start again. See? And you can think your way all the way around this problem. Thusly do you educate yourself. You don't just sit there like a bump on a log and wait, you know. Zenists call this searching and contriving. Yeah? We search through our own selves, through our own mind, without any preconceived notions. You will see that when you go into the thing with your mind, the intellect, you have got preconceived notions. Use them until they're exhausted. We find ourselves contriving all kinds of solutions. Oh, mm, ah, that must be it. Mm, mm, that must be it. Huh? No. However, there finally comes a point, and we call it a maturity of consciousness. You know? When the entire personality, the body and the mind, eh, the, the thoughts, everything, the will, you know, 
is thrown into this effort of the solution. And now, without any thinking, it presses in, you know? And there is this incredible spiritual tension, for lack of better words, and the wall, which Jacob Brehmer calls Hell's Gate, you know, against which you have been beating to no purpose, you know, but now, all of a sudden, this whole new vista all around you, huh? But to get that tension like that, this doubt is necessary, this dark night of the soul. Hmm? You're not blissfully going to go through this whole thing, you know, riding on the top of the wave. There's got to be some troughs in there somewhere. I'm sorry to say, but oh, how you will learn out of them and how you will bless them. There are those people who imagine that the discipline is uh, just to induce a state of self-suggestion, which isn't correct, you know. Enlightenment does not consist in producing a certain premeditated condition by intensely thinking about it. You're not going to have any teacher saying, that is so, if you do that. They will just simply say, that is not so. Right? You sit, you know, and there is this growing awareness of a power in the mind. Hmm? So this thing called, in Japan, Satori, and it's called Hu in Chinese, and it's called by us Enlightenment. Hmm? Now, Zen is not Zen without Satori, they tell me. Mm -hmm. Zen may lose all its literature, all its paraphernalia, all its monasteries. But as long as there is enlightenment, <laughs> and who's going to take that away? Zen will survive to eternity. Yeah. By the way, uh, Jacob Burma, speaking of eternity, called his experience sunrise to eternity. Yep. This intuitive looking, intuitive looking into the nature of things, hmm, as opposed to the analytical understanding, is the unfolding of a new world to us or to anybody who sees it for the first time which up until this point has either been overlooked or unperceived in the confusion of our dualism. And this world, you know, that we saw before changes so that all the seeming opposites and all the seeming contradictions are harmonized. Nothing is left out and nothing is amiss. It is at the same time a mystery and a miracle. Yeah. And then there is the re-evaluation of oneself as a spiritual entity. If you can say that entity. Hmm? 
you know, we solve problems. Uh, whatever work we do, problems arise, and we are put upon to solve the problem and then go on as smoothly as we can. enlightenment now is, is a, uh, the remaking of life itself. Huh? Everything is totally different. In Christianity there is the term conversion. We are converted to Christ. And that of course has the emotional shade to it uh, which uh, is not the same as the Zen or the Satori experience. The Satori experience is, above all, what they call noetic. Hmm. It is abrupt. It is sudden. It comes upon one quite unaware. And it comes when you feel that you have exhausted your whole being to push through these gates. And that is a new birth, then, to go through. And it is the most intimate, the most individual experience, and it is an experience that waits for all of us. Yeah. Nobody left out. Nobody left out. Yeah. All you have to do is grow up and open your eyes. Now, may the peace and the power that passeth all understanding hold us and keep us in the love of the Christed consciousness while we are seemingly separate one from another. And I thank you very much for coming. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.